You're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM and Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry Podcast, or PHIP for short. The aim of this podcast is to show that public health is more than infectious diseases and health guidelines. Throughout the series, we'll get to know some of the people behind public health. In each episode, we invite a public health professional to share their career journey and experiences. Stay tuned to the end of each episode, as we also include a segment on some of the best places in Kingston to promote a greater sense of community. My name is Tiffany Harianto, and I'm a Master of Public Health candidate at Queen's University. I graduated from the Bachelor of Health Sciences Honors Program at McMaster University, where my honors project included making research on music and mental resilience more accessible to the public. As someone with a musical background, it's important to me to raise awareness on how we can apply our interests and passions to promote health for everyone. I'm also the program intern of the Beyond Words program at Union Gallery, which provides a safe space for students and members of the Cataraqui Kingston community to use art and conversation to promote wellness. I'm excited to co-host the podcast in Apple a Day. Through this podcast, I hope listeners will gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of public health. And I am Peyton Bailey. Like Tiffany, I am a student of Queen's University's Master of Public Health program. I have an academic background in physiology and microbiology, while personal interests include infection prevention, youth engagement in public policy, and the use of mass media to facilitate health education. I am delighted to work alongside Tiffany on this podcast and to learn more about the diverse areas of study and implications under the realm of public health science. I consider this podcast an opportunity for listeners of all backgrounds to gain a new perspective of health and how it intersects with various aspects of our society. This is Episode 4, A Biostatistician's Journey. This week, we will learn about what inspires someone to pursue a career in biostatistics and data science. Joining us to share his story and interests is Dr. Wei Tu. Dr. Tu is a senior biostatistician and data scientist in the Canadian Cancer Trials Group, as well as an assistant professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences. He completed his master's and PhD training in statistics from the University of Alberta and has since been extensively involved in research of health issues as they intersect with emerging data science. His work with the Canadian Cancer Trials Group has focused on investigating new drugs, head and neck cancer, and support care trials, as well as new data science platforms. He also teaches applied regression analysis and advanced methods in biostatistics at Queen's University. So for our first question, what inspired you to pursue a career in biostatistics? Um, that's a big question because, you know, you never really, like, after high school, like, oh, I want to do biostatistics. Nobody knows what's biostatistics when you're done. I did not know after high school. So kind of it's like a graduation, like a journey that kind of keep changing and your career path kind of changing. So it's like after high school, I was no idea what I'm going to do. Like, you know, you have to choose a major. Like in China, we have to choose a specific major, not even just like, oh, I want to do science or engineering, but you have to go very specific, and I just had no idea. So I saw, like, I was really bad in physics. I could not do engineering at all, and it wasn't very social, so I couldn't do business. So I was like, I was always pretty good in math. I was like, I'll do something math adjacent, and I was like, maybe I'll just do math and kind of see four years later what can I do, and people have been telling me that 
it's a path, it's something that gonna be useful in many different fields. So I was like, okay, that's kind of like a safe backup plan. So I did that. But then in undergrad, I did pure math, which is highly theoretical. After second year, all the classes are all like extremely abstract. I just I was like, I could not, this is not my thing. I can't <laughs> understand a lot of the material. Like, so I was like, I have to switch something that more, more like concrete that I can actually see or I can apply. So, um, and I took a, a probability course and, uh, and then somehow it got me introducing statistics. I was like, it's still math, math adjacent, but then it has an application side and it's much more manageable on my side. So I applied statistics for most of my grad school program. And then somehow I was doing more theoretical statistics in the beginning, but then later I just kind of discovered I'm my interest, but also my ability. I think I'm better in the collaborative environment. So it's kind of leading me to sort of biostatistics, the most, um, the least mathematical area in, I guess, just people still consider it to be mathematical, but the least mathematical part. <laughs> um, did any of your colleagues early on feel sort of betrayed when you moved on from pure mathematics on the stats? Is, is there any conflict between those realms? <laughs> Oh yeah, one of my uh, undergrad roommate, he later went on to do a pure math in uh, in the states, and then um, he's always like, "Oh yeah, like you are not doing any serious math." And I was like, "I'm fine with that," like you know. <laughs> but honestly, a lot of people switch to statistics or engineering or something more applied just because pure math is not for everybody, especially if you didn't have the exposure. Like it's it's a very you need a special talent, like only like very, very talented people can. And also it's just a very, uh, it's already a very, like a tight field and with not a lot of jobs outside of academia. So people also were considering that as well. So, And I imagine it must be satisfying to see your work be more immediately applied, right? When you're doing more theoretical math, maybe you're not entirely sure how will this be used eventually? Depends on... Um, people's perception about you know what's useful right <laughs> i still i was chatting with a few of my friends in at, at alberta and then some a few of them are right now in waterloo yeah still in pure mass and they were like who cares about being useful like you know uh, there i mean for it's just hard to kind of to um evaluate this because their work might be useful in like applied physics or physics or something super important that we don't haven't understand yet so it's more of a direct uh, like time-wise but yeah like I can see sort of a, a direct um, uh, application like more soon that's I think that's what I meant when I was like I want something more useful but not everybody agrees and which is okay so <laughs> I think there's definitely merit in both, yeah. learning something for the sake of it, and then learning something to see it being used as yeah. well. For and sure. you've had the opportunity to be able to learn both pure maths and statistics as well. So what would you say were the differences in your experiences in both fields? Um, even within statistics, there's people doing more mathematical statistics, where you would, a lot of time would just kind of understand you know what theory you're using, and also what's what what an algorithm, not algorithm, what like theorems that you're applying to. But for more applied statistics, I think the biggest difference is it's not just yourself, and it's never gonna just be 
you and your books and and your computer, you have to collaborate and you have to understand the question. And also, it's like whether a lot of times the method we develop is highly sophisticated, and it's just like, oh my god, nobody's gonna use this because one, it's very restrictive because you have to have all these assumptions on the method. Like you know, whenever you do. T test or whatever. Oh, things have to be normal. Things have to be this and this. They have to be nice in some way. Um, but then in in the real world, things are not. But also, you have to think whether your method actually is going to produce something um, beneficial for whatever collaborator you're you're with. So whenever, for example, like right now in clinical trial world, people are always asking, is the results going to be having any uh, actual impact? You know, like on patients or other things. So it's in, in that, you kind of have to really collaborate with people and think through um, what 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 it actually means. It's not just like in your own world of like methods and formulas and things. So I would say that's kind of a different ability. That's sort of a, I think the collaborative component is more of a I would say, yeah. Right. You've mentioned a few times now, actually, that biostatistics involves a lot of collaboration. Could you explain how you collaborate with other researchers or team members? For sure, yeah.、Um, but again,、um, there's people doing all kinds of stuff in this field.、Uh, there's people doing more, more methodological work, and they would be doing collaboration with other methodologists. So for my role, like currently working as a biostatistician in the trial group, I typically Each trial would be involved in around with like we have in our center we call it、um, a senior investigator, which is usually an oncologist or some sort of medical doctor. So they would be kind of sort of taking care of the medical side, and there will be me, the biostatistician, and there will be also be other experts. For example, health economics experts, quality of life experts, and also basic scientists where they look at genetic markers and things. And there will also be. People from the hospitals, the the nurses, and、uh, the regulatory agencies, you know. So it's a、uh, many many different, and there's also patient representatives, you know. So there's many many different component. But the core group usually, it's、uh, oncologists and me and、uh, a few other clinical trialists, just kind of just because, because you kind of have to understand each part of the trial from the planning and also the execution. So it's a It's really interesting to hear about just how dynamic your work really is. I, I'd like to also maybe take a step back, and you were explaining your experience doing pure mathematics in China, and and maybe we can talk about when you went to U of A to do your master's degree, and and sort of your your pathway academically to、uh, University of Alberta. Would you like to share? Yeah, sure.、Um... Again, the statistic program in each universities in North America kind of varies quite a bit. Some departments tend to be very math, depending on the faculty's research interest. Some of them tends to be a little bit more、uh, on the pure math side. Some of them have their own biostatistics department or like nowadays data science department. So it be, tends to be a bit, bit more applied. At UFA, when I was there, it was quite mathematical. So. Uh, so it wasn't a huge jump for me. Like the first semester, the courses I took still has tons of theories and things to derive. Like I was fine with that, but I wasn't the best programmer back then, and I wasn't the best in like you know communicating statistics.、Um, but then I did lots of、uh, consulting at UFA. So there's like a student consulting club kind of thing. So we would 
the the stats major students would be helping, like students, for example, in medicine or biology or psychology, working with on their projects, they might have an issue, statistical issue. They, you know, so you're kind of like helping them. You also kind of I was so I learned a lot of how to talk to people as they understanding. Oh, you actually you just need to do a regression, or you need to. Have a better data, you know, <laughs> a better experimental design, or and then you also kind of learn better how to communicate, not just like, oh yeah, th- based on the sophisticated model, you have a p value of this, and you have an odds ratio of that, and then it. So through that, I kind of um, enjoyed more of the collaborative component, and I also worked on a. Besides my own thesis, I also did a couple more really like health data health data related projects with the prof in. Um, um, HIV, so I kind of learned a little bit more how they routinely collect data and how each of the variables means to so kind of learn, because usually in, in statistics courses you have, you're given a perfect data set with everything is cleaned and uh, and a lot of times you don't even hear much about how the data were collected, you just oh, I have this variable 5x predictors in one response and then we're going to do all this fancy work on this. But then you don't really learn like, okay, where are these you know things from the patients how they were selected, so just and also you know all this nitty gritty for daily data collection and and how and sometimes when when we are writing like conclusion we will say yeah X is related to Y in this but then it's hard for us without the content to go forward what do this result translate into so I think it's really everybody's path is a bit different but for me the collaborative project kind of opened my my eyes kind of saying okay there it's more a lot of things more beyond the theory and the um, um, you know the formulas and things yeah so application is really important in better understanding statistics so I'm curious now what was your first major project where you got to apply what you learned I would say it's the uh, so you might th- I think my third year or my second year, um, my PhD, I did a couple projects with a uh, neuro- neurologist, Dr. Power. He's a physician and a neurologist, and he works at the uh, HIV, HIV clinic in Alberta. They actually have a really nice system in Alberta where they had the, the, the I think it was called South Alberta Institute of something, where they see a lot of HIV patients, and then they actually have data from like 1994, 1995. Collected this data for a long time, and it's really valuable data because people would keep going back to it because they need medicine and 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 healthcare. So it's really quality data, and we're looking at a couple of endpoints that are within this population. And then, I mean, he already kind of did a lot of, you know, descriptive statistics, univariate analysis, multivariate logistic regression, things on that. And then, uh, and he was just like, oh, maybe we could. Can you try something fancy to see what sort of our more advanced machine learning based uh, approaches on the data set to see what other predictors they couldn't identify to uh, so in that project the the endpoint is like um, neuropathy so some cognitive endpoint um, um, so I did it was a quick project because the data has already been cleaned and they have been uh, it's in a great format and I just kind of have to try a, f- a couple of algorithms. But then there were also challenges because I was trying to understand the data collection because a lot of times it's not it's not like sometimes people are saying even in clinical trials people are thinking oh yeah you collect data at a fixed time point and then you have a fixed time point and you just correlate them or something. But what happens is there's this very complex temporal relationship like sometimes for example in HIV they, they take measurements of people's viral loads 
and that could be taken like sometimes they do it every year or every whatever frequency of people come going back to the clinic. So it's actually a very comprehensive projection. It's not just a one time point. So it's like when you're doing analysis, you're like, oh, is this a measurement taken before my outcome? Like, are they, because when you're if you're actually going to apply the algorithm in the future, you want to say I need to have all this number right now, and then I apply calculate whatever the risk of people developing whatever symptom. But then you don't really have that measurement. And also the measurement taking at different time points are very different. So it's a very challenging kind of understanding that aspect, the temporal aspect. But also we had a couple of sort of people or patients are very different and the other is different cohort. So in a lot of that, you kind of have to dig really into the data, not just say apply, you know, these are your axes or your y's and you do your algorithm. So I would say after that project, I'm kind of getting a better better sense than, because in the school, in class, what we have learned is usually you're given the predictors, you're given the y, and we're going to try all these fancy algorithms to see which algorithm has the best predicting score, things like that. But in practice, you kind of, there's like much, much more than that. But we did do um, kind of found of using other sort of more advanced algorithms, not advanced, like, sophisticated algorithms and you were able to find um, something that your linear regression could not pick out. So that was interesting. Like, for example, we found one of the drugs that the patients were taking are, the patients who are taking a specific type of drug are, are all, like, uh, before, like, in a specific time frame because after that, the drug was not discontinued. I mean, they know that, but then from the data, it's kind of like, oh, you actually picked that out from this very complex data set. So yeah, so there's small things like that. Yeah. A lot of factors involved. A lot of factors. And of course, in the end, the end product is never perfect. It's always like we have to compromise. It's like, oh, we, the, we just cannot use all of the just different measurements because people have different um, different numbers of, of measurement, but also different frequencies. Like I, at that time, it's like, I don't really know how to capture this without being like biased. It's like, I'm, not, I'm just going to use the baseline, which not perfect, but then... You just kind of have to, but at least you're not mistakenly using all of it, thinking that, oh, this is what you would have at the beginning of your studies. So, yeah. It sounds like in that particular project, there were a lot of learning opportunities. So what have you learned from this project and past projects that you're now applying in your current <clears throat> project? Um, yeah, like uh, currently in, in, uh, in the trial world, a lot of things are very standard, like you have all these standard tables that you need to report, like, you know, patient's baseline characteristics, prior therapy, current therapy, how the therapy were delivered, the adverse events happening to it. But a lot of things do transfer. For example, for trial data, it's also collected longitudinally. And you would also have sometimes people, patients or the hospital did not report certain things in a certain period. And you might also have... Um, um, a couple of like events happened that not as planned. So uh, like the complexity of reality, I think that sort of transfer. Like it's, I feel like it always go down to, like you really have to go down understand. Sometimes even at the patient level, like okay, what's happening here? Why this patient has a different trajectory than everybody else? I think that kind of skill is transferable. Like you know, it's like um, I think when I was a student, a lot of part of my career, I would think I just need people to give me a data set, give me an Excel or whatever, a nice data set, and I'll just do my thing, you know. 
but then uh which never is and then so i think that part now kind of me appreciate how the whole data collection part and also and also like um if you're in Epi or public health science, you know the the design aspect is also hugely important. Like you know how how we're collecting data, how the how the experiment was designed is also hugely important. And I think that's kind of a part that was not discussed much in a lot of at least the, the training I was receiving. As like we have always focused on methodology, but not a, a lot about the everything else but uh, the methodology, yeah, if that makes sense. Would you say experimental design should be or play a bigger role in statistical education? I, t- I did take ex- experimental design in grad school, and U of A actually had one, a couple of uh, very famous statisticians working in that field, Dr. Uh, Wings, for example. But I would say, though, a lot of the content it is a bit dated, like the field of experimental design statistics starts from agriculture, and that's where a lot of famous statisticians like Fisher they started. They know saying how how are we going to plant the seeds and things to maximize, you know, to look at different. So so we do we learn a lot of design, like all kinds of design to, to um, but it's different than what you learn in Epi, like you know, is it a cohort study? Is it cross sectional? So it's completely different. So I think that aspect is definitely. Uh, like I think every, not a, probably most people in um, statistics have took some epi, and I think that part is quite important. But also, I think I'm more also thinking about. It's kind of hard to put that into a course. It's like the challenges that you face when you actually do collect data. Like for example, if you are running a survey or you are running a trial, like that kind of things. I think it. But that would be very topic specific. Like depending on. But I think it's just a general um, mark of how people um, think through their research question. As again, I think it's that idea of, and nowadays also, it's a lot of we call it data-driven things, right? Like you know, we are just uh, passively collect so much data, whatever we are being measured, and, you know, <laughs> we're being watched and measured in so many ways. Like you know, wherever you go to. You go to a website; they actually measure like where you browse, or how many things in your in your cart, and all of these things are measured. So a lot of times we're passively observe data, and people are trying to mine these data, saying well, whatever we're going to come out come out of. Like for example, the real estate um, field; they're also collecting, you know, who are buying and what's, and then they came up with like, or the insurance company, they come up with like, oh yeah, so what what type of people are more likely to default their loan, that kind of thing. But a lot of times, they, I think they don't really take into account how the data were collected, what are the customers, and uh, is there a bias in there from the very beginning? So I think those things are not or overlooked because when at the end of the day, we have collected so much data and you send it to a data expert and they will just mine the data, getting whatever coming out of it. But a lot of the biases and a lot of things were already there. And, and, and it's, sometimes it's just very hard to to understand it because it has been through so many hands and it has been so complex. It's like, I don't, it, 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 it's, it's out of sort of the reach of a, a data person because that's so, but anyway, that's where I think a lot of a part of it's, again, it's go back to the content and uh, the research question or whatever, not research, the question they're trying to answer with data. Yeah. There's a lot involved in biostatistics. <laughs> How do you communicate all of this to your students? 
Yeah, like、uh, Dr. Liu and me were teaching the applied applied machine learning for health data last term, and it was a challenge. And I think we are kind of it's the first time we're offering, and、uh, um, we we had the idea that we don't want the course to be too mathematical, but instead of more heavy on the programming outside, but also the application side. But if we also want to、um, exp- expose as many topics as we can, so that students You might not have to go too deep into the topic, like you might not be an expert in this field, but you have heard about it. You kind of have an overall idea what it is, but then you can go back into it if you want to use it. So we did a lot of introduction. So I I did the second part of the course. I did、um, introduce many many different f- methods, and but then I didn't go very deep. But and then we did a project in the end using um, um, the Canadian.、Um, House pass data, the camp pass data, and I think from the report, most people did pretty well. But I think I did put too much content. Sounds like it was like, oh my god, three more <laughs> completely new topics this this week again, and they were just like a lot to handle. But again, I wasn't. I guess expectation was a bit different. So I think it really depends on sort of my expectation on the students. If I want them to have a broader、uh, exposure, I would probably go with that route. But Sometimes I want them to be, for example, if your course are more specific on what, like I really want you to know how to do regression in SAS, right? Then then you would have to be specific. So I think it's still a learning curve for me. But also I think a lot of times I would just be talking for three hours in a session, and it's kind of hard to get what the students input in it. So it's a work in progress. <laughs> What kind of lessons do you wish you had known before going into st- into statistics? And maybe what kind of lessons are you trying to、um, give to your students currently? Um, <laughs> I I again, it's you not know, it's a lot of not regrets, but just kind of things like oh, I wish I've done that and this. I would always say um um sort of communicate with. Either your peers or your,、um, or your supervisors, you know, professors in the department, and a lot of times when you're in graduate school,、uh, I think for me for a while is it's very easy to sort of fall into your own bubble because you're working on a very very specific project, and you, I mean, sometimes depending on your supervisor, the type of interaction you have with supervisor, some supervisor are like. Very very keen on like I need to see you every day I need to see you on a desk, eight to five every day. <laughs> some some professors are very like, hello like you know see you in six months kind of thing. So it really depends on that. But I think, on a general, it's better to develop a broader interest, and also not just、uh, like kind of like trapped in your own bubble because one thing is getting very lonely and frustrated. But also I think as your career forward, you will realize that. You probably won't be working on the same thing in a long time. Like you might have to change field, you might have to change topics and things.、So、I think it's good to get an overall better sense of what's happening in the community, as in what are most people doing. Like what are the hot trend? What are the you know the the top papers coming out? What are they talking about? And what are the jobs are? Where are the opportunities are? So I think those are the things.、Um, And when you're a student, you're kind of like you're juggling between you know, schools and courseworks and just survive survival, and you know, <laughs> so it's kind of hard to get that, like vision. 
Like, you know, like I think, and that kind of vision does coming with experience. And, and I think uh, for that, you might talk to people who are, that are more experienced than you, you know, talk to people who are more senior in the program, your, your different professors in the program and, and other people. I think sometimes that kind of like give you a different idea. Like, oh, maybe I can try that and that. So I think, I guess the main advice is don't, don't talk to people and don't just be, you know, by yourself, you know, all by yourself. So. <laughs> There's something almost poetic about your, your journey through statistics, how you started out in a very specific stream of pure mathematics, and it seems like you've become almost an advocate of very broad spectrum learning. And you're almost passing that on to your students as well through your, your teaching and also your mentoring. I guess, yeah. Like, I think for me, myself, um, talk, like communication, talking to people and just kind of like being open to things have brought me many opportunities. And uh, and also was kind of trying to do different things. You know, if you're, for example, if you're interested in doing industry, you might want to do, try to do an internship, that kind of thing. So I think... Yeah, like for based on my experience, those did benefit me, and I got many opportunities from that. So I think that's kind of you know like um, a bit of advice. But also, if you are focused on your thing and uh, uh, on your specific project, and you're doing like it's always good. But it's just uh, I guess um, um, there's many, many more and many, many other things that's happening um, at the same time. So yeah. I think these are really important lessons for all of us to learn as well. And you mentioned that you teach SAS to your students. Is this the statistical software that you use for yourself the most often? Uh, I don't. So for the for the 823, we used R specifically because we don't want all the courses are being taught in SAS in this department. <laughs> but also, we just, like, I was never trained in SAS, but... I kind of have to, it's in, in the clinical trial world or in general biostatistics, SAS is the dominant language because of many, many reasons. Just historically, it have, it's a commercial language, you know, in the sense that it can be defended legally because R is an open uh, source software. Nobody's responsible for anything, right? You use it at your own risk. But for SAS, for example, if you say, I used I have my programs here and you sort of have a bit of guarantee but we i kind of know that that's not doesn't really matter because when you're computing a contingency table you don't need you don't need like whatever um guarantee like it's it's there's not much computation involved so for a lot of so and then it just kind of becomes a tradition like you know every every major pharma company you said fda uses it and then everybody uses it and and then all the programmers and SAS and biostatistics are trained in SAS and all the universities teaching it. And then you're just, and SAS is a big empire and people buy it and queens buy it. And then, so it's, I don't know where we, but I don't see a reason we have to get out of it. Like it's a fine, it's a good software, but also it's kind of, if you're going for newer methods and uh, for researchers to develop their own packages, you have to go to R. And also for some data that are more sophisticated, SAS don't have the capacity to deal with it. And I think for me personally, R is much more closer to natural language. Like when I'm writing R code, I feel like I'm just like, like you know, writing a paragraph kind of thing. But for SAS, there's something 
very specific. Like you have to abide the rule kind of thing. So, um, so in terms of language, I think if you really want to be comfortable, you definitely should. And a lot of it, there is a learning curve, but after you're comfortable with it, I think it's a good thing to to learn these things. But, um, but I've seen people comfortable with SPSS or Excel, like. I mean, it's fine. It's just um, sort of uh, sometimes become a limitation. Um, yeah, um, I would say programming is hugely important in um, whatever you do, even though, for example, if you're in MPH or in Epi, if you are good in programming, that opens many, many doors. I mean, one thing, you just do things more efficiently for your own project. Like, you can just manipulate things. And, and sometimes people are getting intimidated by it, like I too as well. Like, I just like, oh my God, I haven't touched this before. And it just kind of like, feels like a lot of to deal with and you kind of get intimidated by it. And then after a while, you just kind of get behind. But I think if you're just embrace it and trying to learn it, and I mean, you're not trying, a lot of times I'm not trying to be an expert. It's kind of like, okay, I kind of understand it. And then I, with time by, go by, you kind of get better. And I think it's, it makes you, like we're talking all about having different abilities, right? Like, you know, we all know, you know, writing skills, communication is all important. And programming, I think it's a big part and it comes to real handy. And and sometimes it's not even, like for example, in my uh, work, um, uh, like I don't do a lot of programming, we have programmers, and but also for the oncologists I work with or some other um, medical doctors, some of them have really good idea of programming and uh, biostatistics in general. So that's a huge, I mean, they probably don't have to write themselves, but if you have that knowledge, it really just makes things so much easier. And you also like, it, it's not just like, oh my God, I don't, like as a, if you're a medical doctor, I don't understand any of this. Biostatistics jargon, then I think it, that's a disadvantage for you because it's like, you know, it's harder for, you, you cannot understand the product or the things as deep as if you were know the language better, so. You must feel quite a sense of relief when you find a medical doctor you're working with does have some familiarity with the software you're using. And oh yeah, a lot of them are amazing, and a lot of them are just like knows all about, like uh, Dr. Paraliker, Wendy is working at. She's always having all the SAS and 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 biostatistics. I was like, oh my god, they are yeah, really smart people. So. <laughs> I'm going to uh, go back a little bit to your work on HIV clinical trials, and you had briefly mentioned your use of machine learning, I believe, in that project. And for those who are unfamiliar, could you just share what machine learning is and what it is about this field that excites you? Yeah, again, um, I think many people would have the, not a misconception, just kind of idea saying a lot of methods that we are using, for example, logistic regression, where you have been taught in many, many intro SAS courses are part of machine learning and is a huge part of machine learning. Like it's 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 one of the most efficient algorithms out there. So when I'm talking about machine learning, I mean, there are other algorithms, uh, for example, in machine learning, well, if you always say supervised learning or unsupervised learning, where supervised learning is where you have an outcome, for example, a disease outcome to guide. And the goal that in that sense is trying to predict, for example, what type of people are more likely to get lung cancer, you know, right? And you have the outcome whether people have lung cancer or not. And then you were unsupervised learning where you're just getting a bunch of data points. They're trying just kind of to make sense what data represents. And then there's many, many different. So I, I think comparing to more traditional statistics where we have 
in essence, estimation, right? We do estimation. What's the mean? What's the confidence interval? A lot of that. Or hypothesis testing. You have a specific hypothesis and you have a parameter. You're testing per proportion or the mean. Uh, and then you have regression. That's sort of the core part of what we did in a lot of traditional statistics. Or for machine learning, it's more less structured. When you look at all the traditional statistical models, it's very structured, right? Like you have a linear, linear regression, it has a linear equation there. Or when you're looking at a test, a, a, a test statistics for t-test, there's a testing statistics, a test statistics is there. So it's much, much more structured. But then in the same time, it's kind of limited because the data has to abide with whatever structure you're imposing. So for a lot of these more machine learning heavy methods are much more flexible in a way that they don't, like a lot of times statisticians, what we're doing is to, we have a, a, a theory or whatever, a, a, um, a curve or a theory, and we're trying to see whether the data matches that hypothesis or match that curve or not, and that's what we're doing. But for a lot of these machine learning methods, it's more a data-driven. So it's kind of like explore data, what's the shape of data, and then kind of what's the best dimension reduction of the data. So it's kind of less structure. But then at the same time, the bad thing is a lot of it is a very it's, a, it's an iterative process. And the end product, we just don't know what it is. Like you learn, the people will say, I trained this model. I trained this very complex neural nets or deep learning model, and then I can I'm be able to predict that with a 90% of accuracy, like people with this genetic, with that trait, with that trait, it's going to get cancer. But then your people are just asking you, like, what's a, what really is your model? And you don't really know, because a lot of it is a, kind of like a black box model, where the system is highly complex, and with thousands and thousands of thousands of parameters in it, and it's really like for a lot of traditional models, we know this is a line, this is what, so you know what's happening to your system, it's a robust system. But for the highly trained mod, the more sophisticated models, it's more black box and it's also less stable because a lot of things can change. Like a lot of parameters, you change it and then it might change your model. So sometimes people are calling the parameter tuning part of the model like dark magic because it's just like, we don't really know. We're just going to tune this and that, and we're going to get a good prediction accuracy. But of course, we're doing better, and there's a lot of very exciting things. And also, I think another part is what type of data you're dealing with. Like a lot of times, what I'm dealing with is it's not very complex. I mean, it's, the structure is complex, but it's not a lot of data. But sometimes I'm looking at some, like recently we have some genetic data component. The data is just and a 50 gigabytes of data like and then just like how do i compute mean from 50 gigabytes of data i cannot just do like a one line of code and mean and you have to do like oh i have to divide them into a specific part that so that part is it, it, itself is a type of uh, a science or like kind of like art you know you have to learn really how to deal with and also like how am i going to store like we're thinking how am i going to store in all of this data and and also just the databases part so I think that part is also a part I'm trying to learn, like, and not really to deal with these, um, the handling of uh, large, um, uh, large scale of data set uh, with complex structure. So I think that's also a thing that separates with traditional statistics, whether it's these more machine learning based approaches.
It sounds like it's a really tight mix of both exciting advancements and or exciting advances and also a lot of challenges too. For sure, yeah. What would you say would be some future directions that the field of biostatistics <clears throat> would be heading towards? I certainly think this, um, like, it, you go to a lot of universi universities, like now they're offering programs in data science. Like, for example, I feel like almost every major Canadian university has a Bachelor of Data Science now, or some sort of data science bachelor, and a lot of universities even have master and, and PhD level. Whatever it is, like sometimes we don't really know what the programs highly varies depending on who's running the program, what department the program is at. But I think the term, the direction of going into sort of this health data science where we have um, data set in a larger volume and complexity comes in and we have to equip our graduates the ability to deal with it. I think that's sort of... Um, one thing, like, you know, you, 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 it's not just, you're not going to be comfortable with just, you know, dealing with your toy data in your, you know, perfect world. You have to deal with a lot of these other parts. Uh, and I think another thing is just kind of going back to what I was starting, the communication part as well, as in turning statistics or biostatistics into part of science, because it is now now we're showing data science like it's, that's what statistics is about right like you know you have a hypothesis or you have a data science you're trying to get a conclusion and knowledge out of it so i think it's how to rephrase the field as in um um like really what is the science of data science you know like when, when you're looking at physics or chemistry or biology they sort of have an underlying um how do you call it like rules that, you know, this is going to hold, it doesn't matter. I feel like in statistics or data science, you need to have that kind of rule in data as in a way that, which involves many parts of, you know, statistical literacy, data communication, but also as well as, uh, and also a lot of think times we do things differently. And I think there needs to be a standardization process as in, in what circumstances or what type of um, opportunities what what should be appropriate like for example in, in clinical trials now there's a huge effort of standardizing the data we have been collected so a lot of times we still collect between trials and between places we collect data in a very different way for example all the lab results people could use different units people could use different name to name the variables and also the structure and and when you when you are trying to combine different trials or looking at the old trials, sometimes it's impossible to understand or it's like a huge effort to combine them. So I think since like that, like, you know, how to standardize the data collection processes, the data analyzing processes, as well as uh, the design aspect, I think it's just, uh, it needs to be like a larger effort of, scientists sort of coming together to think oh, what's acceptable. And also lots, lots of people are doing things like reproducible uh, research, right? And they are trying to have like a, a system to have everything tractable so that I think statistics also should be in part of that conversation as in how do we really elevate from just, you know, deriving different methods, different estimates into the science of data, like something like that, which I have a difficult time to grasp, but a more of a higher level, yeah. <laughs> a 
lot of big ambitions for the <laughs> MSc Biostat students in the department then. Yes. <laughs> and I'm curious, as you were describing all the different future directions that the field of biostatistics can take moving forwards, I was wondering as well, how was biostatistics applied during the COVID-19 pandemic then? Yeah, um, like I think for COVID, we have seen lots of you know policies change and a lot of the policies really you need, we always say, where is your evidence, right? Evidence-driven policy. And then the evidence, of course, it has to come from data in the beginning, right? Like it has to come from, you know, in the beginning we're saying, oh, how many, uh, how many cases that we have and all of these different things and we're taking into account. So, and I've seen some cool work of people using um, the, the public available um, data sets either in the States or in Canada to, to, to really understand, you know, what different time points of the pandemic and what what's happening. So there's lots of um, very sophisticated high level, like a biostats project I've seen lots of famous statistician has done in during the pandemic. But also I think is just your day to day, like, you know, when you're having a policy, if you go back and go back and go back, originally it would be resulting in from some sort of a data, some sort of data collection and, and, and analysis. And also, um, uh, I think it's, it's kind of plays a, a very important role at the very basis level. And also just everybody's, it's hard to um, separate, like it's work, because everybody works in a team, right? Like if you look at the COVID-19 task force or whatever in the, in the province or whatever the national level, there will usually be a biostatistician or something. I mean, they could be called differently, but that type of role, like to give their expert opinion in these different things. What do you see as the future of data science really looking like? You mentioned COVID-19. You, you're talking about how data sets have gone from being about agriculture. And now it it seems like with genetics and all these other fields really blossoming, there's more data than ever. So how do we deal with all of that data? And as a data scientist, how do you see the field moving forward? Yeah, um, funny thing is, um, when I was applying for the job at CTG, they're they're on the advertisement, they're saying we're looking for a biostatistics, data science sort of a combination. And then, you know, a lot of people, when I'm looking for a job, they also brand yourself as a biostatistician. But then if I go to a statistical conference, if I see a biostatistician, everybody would be like, oh my God, betrayer. Like, you know, <laughs> call yourself that. Uh, so I always sort of say, I'm a biostatistician and this and that. So, um, but anyway, I think the field of, again, my limited knowledge, very limited uh, data science, it's, a lot of part of it is shaping by industry. Uh, unlike traditionally, a lot of things does come from academia and then you kind of apply that to industry. But in this, the industry really shaped the field because they'd have the capacity, they have the resources, the idea, the, the human resource and things to do all this big, big projects that we could never dream of. So I think the future direction really is like, I don't know, like it's, there are so many opportunities and things. And I think the academia and industry and many, many fields kind of have to come together to 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 shape it together. And also, like, for example, a lot of places are having, um, like Europe, for example, um, tightening the, the rules and the laws on, on data governance and things. So I think it's uh, many, many different aspects, like people are looking at this in different angles. So it's happening at uh, 
explodes like explosive level, and I think we all want to be part of it, and uh, that's why, at for example at CCTG we're trying to start a pro a platform called data science platform, which is not honestly not as fancy as what a, what other people like project is. What we're really trying to do is to um, have all different pieces of data in one place that are standardized, and there we we can look back so that we can efficiently do things. That's the main thing because in trials, you have data coming from very different processes. Like we have data submitted by the hospitals all the time, and we analyze it all the time. But then we also have nowadays with immunotherapy in people, you always have to do a genetic testing, and we have the genetic data from somewhere, and we also have the the imaging data, the CT or MRI scan from your initial diagnosis or your follow-ups and things. And we also have people submitting the quality of life data and things. And then there's also like multiple different trials and things. So we are, I think for data science, a big part is this standardization, data standardization in terms of data quality, data collection, all the SLPs and different things. So I think um, one one sort of future direction really is that, and again, I think a lot of people would agree, the essence of data science is data. It's like high quality data. And, you know, we always say garbage in, garbage out. If you're, so I think that a lot of effort should be put into data collection and a high quality data collection and really think how to efficiently do that. Like one thing I've, we've always been talking about using administrative database to do research and to make the Canadian everyday, everybody's life better, the quality of life better, and, and improve healthcare. We've always said we are going to do that. But then in, in reality, and, and the, from different levels, we have, there's different platform being putting out. The reality is the, the healthcare run by provinces. And there is a lot of different obstacles and just things to getting data together, but also the data standard is not there. If you look at typical EHR system, the data is impossible to work with for researchers. And then who's going to start this effort? Like from, and it has to be like from up to down level. Like we're going to say that everybody use the same system. And we're going to do this in this way, in this way, so that. And that really, I think, it's the the, the core thing. We we don't we have scientists that can work with this type of data. We have scientists who know how to build databases in this. But when we don't have the core data, like for example, you know, how are we going to efficiently treat whatever? Um, uh, and like for example, Canada doesn't even have a really good cancer registry. Like for example, um, the other day we were, for a lot of the trials, you know, you, you can only uh, uh, follow up people for like five years or something. And then the study will be closed because we don't have enough money to foreverly, you know, follow people. So I know we're thinking, can we just use our health system to follow up on people who get their healthcare number and things, right? And then we can just get a data points when they die or something. But then it's, I know we were talking to a few colleagues in the UK and they were like, oh, we have that set up already. Like it's automated. Like we always get that. Like it's part of our healthcare system. Like, you know, you just, you don't, you always get that data point. Like we don't even have that in Canada. Like, you know, it's so, so I think it's a lot of, um, I feel like collaborative effort into how to how do we efficiently collect data to maximize the outcome and to just to efficient like you know in a society there's a lot of 
structural waste, right? And then things, how do we do things efficiently? So uh, I think data collection actually will be a huge part. Yeah. It's definitely a lot about modernizing public health data as well. For sure. Our conversation has went a lot of different directions, and it's been amazing, actually, all the different things that we've gotten to talk about. So as we near the end of our conversation, one major thing stands out to me, and that's about data literacy and how a lot of our listeners might be beginners when it comes to data literacy. So how would you advise for people to begin learning these skills? I think one thing is how do we teach that better, you know, <laughs> because people do learn whatever they're in in school. Um, but uh, I'm thinking of like a, a more of a day-to-day when people are reading an article or and some piece on their phone, they will be reading some outrageous art title, like eating an apple a day would cause you to have this or don't eat that, that would cause you that. So um, I think causality is a big part, as in really understand whatever we outcome we observe, it's a result of many, many different things. But also when you're reading a statistics or, uh, for example, a proportion or a mean or things, uh, you have to kind of understand how this work, again, how this work collected and also what's the background story. So I think some, some like news agencies or some sites that's better than the others. For example, sometimes I knew I was reading New York Times, they would have this really impressive visualization to give you the full picture and you can manipulate the, 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 the image to see what's happening and really... So I think for that, it definitely is better than showing people like just a, a number or a couple of numbers. Um, so I think from the societal point of view, the whatever results or whatever conclusions we're pumping out should be more informative and not misleading. But from a viewer point of view, I think it's to dig dig into it. Like sometimes during COVID, we have seen people just read a number from somewhere and really extrapolate and then like saying things that are not true. But then if you dig into it and go back to whatever the research paper that's public published or whatever the, the context, for example, my sister the other day was telling me um, I forgot even what what type of drug she was using and saying that this is going to be really helpful for COVID. And then if you really go into into the paper, it works for people who are not vaccinated. And I was like, you're vaccinated, like it doesn't really apply to you and or like a general public. So I think that kind of skill, like really being critical and then um, digging into the sources and trying to find what's the sources of a number, that's something from a viewer side that you can do to see what really is this number and trying to understand it. But I think it's in both part the uh, society has to do better as well, not misleading people. To get, yeah. These are really important skills for all of us to be able to improve on as well. To end our episode, we actually had a couple of fun questions too. So our podcast aims to be community-oriented, and part of this involves encouraging our listeners to explore Kingston and engage with the community more. So in that regard, what is your favorite place downtown or near campus? Bell Park is really nice. Uh, it's a huge park. I, f- I feel like most of you haven't been there, and it's by the water. It's, uh, it's a great place to walk. I'll be sure to check that out at some point. <sighs> You mentioned at a department event that you had your own radio show. So what do you most enjoy about radio? 
Oh, I. Well, in high school, we had、uh, a radio station,、uh, which is not really a radio station because it doesn't send signal to the air. It just broadcasts to the campus. There's like a few、uh, speak speaker on campuses. If you're on campus, you can hear it. And on and dinner time, like six or seven p.m. And for my high school, we actually have night classes. Like I would, and I lived on campus, and we would have classes from like seven to nine. So we would, everybody will be. On the cafeteria or near campus, and so anyway, so during dinner time we had a show.、Um, I honestly don't remember the name, but the content is people writing letters to the radio station.、Uh, you have first you have to say well, what song do you want to play and who who do you want to play the song for, and and they can write a small note and to that person. So we get a lot of birthday you know、uh, songs, and we got lots of.、Um, Love letters, like sometimes anonymous, you know. <laughs> so it's quite fun. It's just kind of like reading people's letters and play a music, a song in the end. So that was my that wasn't my radio, but it was a fun process. And I liked、um, just like reading letters, and I was good at it. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our chat today, Doctor Wei Tu. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to an Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry podcast, produced with the generous support of Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. One hundred one point nine FM CFRC is broadcast from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek and Haudenosaunee peoples. For any questions, comments, feedback, or even just dropping a friendly hello. You can reach out to appleaday.phip at gmail.com. Tune in next time at one hundred one point nine FM CFRC. CFRC.